This morning's scripture reading comes from Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Guard your your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is God's word. With what heart do we bring to God God in worship? With what heart do we approach God when we gather to sing, to pray, to open his word? Is it genuine? Are we just going through the motions? We've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes for several months, following the preacher on his quest to find lasting gain and significance in what we see and do and experience here on earth in the few days that we have under the sun. And for the most part, uh, he's been asking this question, setting aside God and the difference that he makes. And so he's looked at human activity, human wisdom, time, justice, relationships, and so far, every single thing that he's examined has been found wanting. A mere vapor that doesn't last and doesn't satisfy. And so, as is often the case as we go through life, feeling thwarted at every turn, all of our plans going awry, all of our dreams being unmet, the preacher, who's probably the ancient King Solomon, he turns where many of us turn in that moment of desperation, to religion. Maybe God can help me get what I want out of life. If none of these other things are satisfying, maybe I'll try religion. Or maybe I've made him mad and somehow I need to to figure it out and, and get him off of my back. But... Rather than offering more observations about life here, Solomon instead steps out of investigation mode and into the pulpit, as it were, to offer straightforward instruction about the danger of religion when we approach God, not because of who he is or because of what he's done for us, but because of what we think we can get out of him or out of some religious experience. The danger when we enter his presence, not to love him or worship him, but to use him. 
In other words, what Solomon reminds us this morning is that God is our heavenly king, not our personal assistant or our cosmic backup plan. God is our heavenly king. He's a God to be feared and treasured, even as he invites us to approach him boldly and joyfully through the blood of Christ. So what does it look like to take God seriously when we worship? That's what he's going to help us understand this morning. So let's pray together. Lord, remind us this morning that there is nothing more precious than having an audience with you, than being able to come into your presence. Give us eyes to see you clearly. Just who are we approaching? Give us ears to hear your voice and change our hearts, God, by your spirit. By the grace of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes 5 deals with entering God's presence in worship. That's the subject. When the preacher says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, the house that he's talking about is ancient Israel's temple. The place where God dwelled among his people in a special way. So it's the place where people on earth would go to meet with the God who is in heaven, uh, Israel's temple. And of course, when we gather to worship God today, we don't go to a temple. It's not as contingent on a building and so on and so forth. Uh, because when Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh, as both fully God and fully human, he became the place of God's special presence on earth. He, his body replaced the building as a new temple. The sacrifices that ancient Israel would bring to the temple in order to deal with their sin and so on, Jesus took those sacrifices and became the great sacrifice once for all time and the high priest who offered it to God on our behalf. And so all that the temple was and is, Jesus took on himself and fulfilled it as a new temple a high priest and the true Passover lamb. And when he rose from the dead, he sent his Holy Spirit on his people and they became the place of God's special presence. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So today, when as we live our lives between the cross and the new creation, when the Lord returns... The church is God's temple, Uh, not the building, but the people, the people who gather in worship, in witness, uh, in song, prayer, scripture and sacrament. So we don't go to the house of God anymore, per se, the way Israel did. But just because the way we approach God in worship is different does not mean that we don't struggle with the same temptations and make the same mistakes that Solomon is warning us against here, particularly the temptation to use God instead of love and worship him. That's a temptation we all struggle with, whether we even know God personally or not. And I think this takes several shapes. First is the irreligious person who is looking for some help. 
you know, church doesn't have much of a place. God doesn't have a whole lot of place in life. But when, lo- when life stops going their way, they realize that they have to deal with the big guy upstairs. You know? and, and so, meaning they need to get God off of their back. They need to figure out a way to make him happy, make up for whatever it is that they've done wrong, or maybe pay him back for some good he's done for them so that they can finally get what they want out of life. God is the personal assistant. He's the cosmic backup plan. Now, maybe that's you. Maybe you're here this morning because God spared your life from a terrible car accident this week and you felt you needed to go to church. Maybe it's because you've got a big interview this week and you need all the help you can get. And so you got to go to church this week. And if that's you, I want to say, welcome. I am so glad God brought you here. And I believe that if he brought you here for one of those reasons, it's because he wants you to know there's a lot more to him than a car accident or a job. He's the holy God of the universe who wants to know you. But that's one of the kinds of people that this passage is speaking to, the irreligious who just need help. The second kind of person is the religious person who takes a special pride in keeping the rules, who's thankful that unlike those other people, they have God on their side because they always do whatever he asks of them. They have the red phone on the desk. It's the direct line. When they pray, God picks up right away and listens because he knows he can count on them. I can venture to guess that there's some of us in this room who fit that category too. The third is the disconnected person. The disconnected person. So, you know, this person often has a genuine faith, but maybe they're distracted by the worries of life, um, by the trials that they're going through, or maybe they're disenchanted by all of the problems they see in the church, in the world. Perhaps they're simply disinterested and bored, unconvinced that what they do every Sunday morning has anything to do with the rest of life. They know it's the right thing to do, or or at least they're afraid of what others would think if they don't do it, and so they're here, but they're disconnected. They're not engaging God. They're just going through the motions, maybe putting a good face on it, like we saw in the video. They're not engaging God because for whatever it is that's taking up all their focus and attention, they don't find God particularly useful for that. Now, whatever the case, we all face the temptation to gather in worship and to let that worship uh, to be more interested in what we get out of it than what God gets out of it, out of our presence, out of our our praise so we're using god which if we think carefully about it means that we're not loving him we're actually despising him because we are treating him as something less than worthy of our full attention our full devotion we're making him a means to an end rather than the chief end of all of life to know and enjoy him Solomon calls this the worship of fools. And not only is it stupid, it's evil 
and it's deadly. Because it fails to appreciate God's holiness and to respond with the appropriate fear. That's Solomon's concluding exhortation at the end of verse 7. God is the one you must fear. Now, by holiness, we mean the way in which God is different from us. So he's set apart in beauty, in perfection, in majesty, in glory. So priceless that he can't even look on sin and wickedness or allow it into his presence. So worthy that there's nothing else in creation or all of life deserving of our praise and devotion. And because he's so holy, so magnificent and set apart and perfect, when it comes to a sinner entering into his presence, the Bible calls him a consuming fire. And as our parents taught us when we were children, you don't play with fire. You must respect it, lest you get burned. And that's actually what we mean by fear. Holiness is God's majestic difference from us to him. He's set apart. Fear is a reverence and respect. You know, when you strike a match to light a candle, you keep an eye on how close that flame is getting to your fingers. You respect the flame. Because you know if you get careless, there are consequences. So when we approach God, a holy God, we must do so with respect and with awe. Knowing that we're invited into his presence on his terms, by his grace and for his purposes. It is a gift of God in Christ, not to be taken for granted. The, excuse me, the English Puritans understood this well. J.I. Packer, um, author and scholar, writes, The Puritans never ceased to feel a sense of awe and wonder that access to God in peace and friendship was possible at all. As John Owen wrote, Truly for sinners to have fellowship with God, the infinitely holy God, is an astonishing dispensation. It's a privilege not to be taken lightly that we are invited into audience with the holy God of the universe. And yet because it's a privilege, that means there's also a danger on the other side. When we empty it of worship and turn it into an opportunity for personal gain. And so to help us understand what that looks like, what it looks like to take God seriously as we gather and and go to meet him. The preacher gives us three instructions this morning to which we must add a fourth as we take this passage in light of all of scripture. They are these. Listen up. Hold your tongue. Keep your word. And in all these things, cling to the cross. That's where he's taking us. Listen up, hold your tongue, keep your word, and in all these things, cling to the cross. So we begin with listen up in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools 
for they do not know they're doing evil. Now, we've talked a little bit about the sacrifice of fools, turning worship into something shallow and self-serving, coming to God with our own agendas, ignorant of His or just plain unimpressed with Him, going through the motions with our hearts and our minds focused on something else. But better than that is coming before God to listen. To listen. God has made Himself known throughout history in several ways. But the culmination of his revelation of himself, the culmination of making himself known, is the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. That's why the Bible is so central to our worship services here. That's why it's so central to everything that we do as a church. In this book, God is speaking. God is speaking. The question is, Are we listening? Are we listening? When you come to church, do you come expecting to hear from God? And I'm not talking about my words or any preacher's words. My job is to be faithful and clear to his word. Another Puritan, Richard Baxter, describes the kind of expectancy and diligence with which we should come before God every Sunday. Come not to hear with a careless heart, as if you were to hear a matter that little concerned you, but come with a sense of the unspeakable weight, necessity, and consequence of the holy word which you are to hear. Make it your work with diligence to apply the word as you're hearing it. You have work to do too, as well as the preacher, and should be all the time busy as he is. You must open your mouths and digest it, for another cannot digest it for you. Therefore, be all the while at work and abhor an idle heart in hearing, as well as an idle minister. So the goal of our gathered worship is not some spiritual experience. Not to connect socially with others or to make sure that we are right because the preacher is agreeing with me on this point. Neither is it to be entertained. The goal, our goal, is to encounter and commune with God. To relate personally with the God of the universe, both individually and as a congregation together. And that communing begins with listening. Begins with listening. And I have to confess that studying this passage, this is an uncomfortable habit preachers run into. When you're studying a passage, you find yourself completely convicted uh, of what it's talking about. Um, on this point in particular, it's very easy for me to sit down and open my Bible to prepare a sermon instead of to meet with God. It's very easy for me to do. Um, to think about how I might teach something instead of sitting down at God's feet to commune with him to listen carefully to his voice and let him confront me and encourage me with his word. I don't know if you knew it was possible to use God from the pulpit, not just from the pew, but sadly it's true. Um, And for that reason, I'm increasingly thankful for the cross uh, as a preacher. Apart from the cross of Christ, we have no ears to hear God And we have no mouth to speak his voice. 
but through the cross and through faith in Christ. We have grace to forgive us when we're careless in how we come before him. We have mercy to equip us. We have his Holy Spirit to open our ears, to put his words in our mouths, and to make himself known to us by his grace and enabling us to listen up. So I'm thankful for the cross. So that's the first one, though. Listen up. Come to hear from God. Not just to hijack your audience with him with your own agenda. But second, hold your tongue. Hold your tongue. Verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When we come into God's presence seeking something that we want or to win his approval, as one author puts it, there's a natural assumption in religion that God is somehow impressed with word count. Okay? So like an ambitious student submitting ten pages when the teacher only asked for two. We, we come before God and we heap it up because we're going to get his attention. And this is particularly tempting for the religious among us, those who think that by virtue of their personal holiness and their hard work, they have a corner on God's favor. And so we, it's best to remind him how spiritual I am when I pray. Listen to what Jesus says about this. He addressed the same thing in the Gospel of Matthew. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Sound familiar? You know, Solomon takes a a similar approach reminding us that when we come before God in prayer, we need to keep in mind who we're talking to. The God who is in heaven, our heavenly king, and that we are here on earth. And so we come in humble submission, not in creative manipulation. He wants us to come in humble submission, which means he's not looking for us to come up with a bunch of fancy words that's going to get his attention or win his approval. He's not waiting for us to say just the right phrase so that we can get what we want. You know, you pray and then it's, oh, I forgot to say in Jesus' name. He's not going to ground that, that one. You know, Prayer is neither a magic spell where if I say just the right thing, I'll get it, nor is it a show. It is rather an expression of our submission our dependence upon God. So we can let our words be few. He knows what we need already. We come in submission. We can let our words be few. Now that doesn't mean that he doesn't want us to pray often and to pray with persistence. He does. But our persistence comes from our great need for him, not our great ability to impress him. As Solomon says in verse 3, just like endless busyness and toil can cause a lot of dreams and a fitful sleep, so endless words makes you look like a fool. 
So when we're tempted to try and impress God with our words, hold your tongue, trust His grace. Let your words be few. He's a gracious God who wants to hear you. He doesn't need you to put on a show. So listen up, hold your tongue, now keep your word. Verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should pay and not vow. Excuse me. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. In the Old Testament, a vow was a promise or an oath that someone made to God that they would do something for him, often in seeking his favor and mercy in some way. So you think of Hannah in 1 Samuel praying in desperation for a son. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So that's a vow. The temptation was to downplay the seriousness of the vow when it, tam- when it came time to fulfill it, to pay it, or else to turn a vow into a crude means of bargaining with God. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And again, those temptations are not uncommon today. As Douglas Wilson says, talking about what you will do is a good, low-cost way to enhance your reputation down at the church. We talk about all of our things we promise to do for God. You know, How many of us have said something like, God, if you get me out of this one, I'll do this. I'll go to church for the next month. I'll go on that missions trip, something like that. If, if, he, if he gives me his phone number, I promise I'll start going to youth group again. Yeah. If, if you land me this job, I promise I'll become a missionary in my second career. Yeah. How many of us have said or thought or prayed things like that? We make promises often because of what we think we can get out of them. Or sometimes we make them because God puts it on our heart and it's the right thing to do. You know, uh, um, we hear of a missionary in need and so we pledge to support them so much a month. But then summer vacation comes and you're looking at the checkbook and you're trying to figure out, well, I guess I'll just put this one off a couple months because this is we planned this vacation and, and so on. And we don't keep our word. Maybe we uh, decide that we weren't working with enough information when we made the promise, and so it was actually just a mistake. We can't do this anymore. How many of you done that? It's scary. We run our mouths out of ambition and zeal. But just as our dreams at night are fruitless and fleeting, they don't come to anything, so our many words prove to be nothing but vapor and smoke. Vanity. 
And all of a sudden, like the guy trying to impress God in prayer, we find ourselves standing in the shoes of the fool. And God has no pleasure in fools. Reverence for God, taking God seriously, means keeping our word. Doing what we will promise to do. If you're not going to keep your promise, it's best not to make one. As Jesus instructed us, rather than making rash religious vows to impress God or others, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Keep your word. Lest we belittle God's holiness and treat worship like a harmless hobby where we can just throw words around and they don't really mean anything. Because the reality is there's nothing harmless about worship about entering into God's presence, about promising to do something and then withholding that promise. I mean, think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. They promised that they made a vow that they would give the church all the proceeds from the sale of their home. But then they decided to secretly keep some back for themselves. And God struck them in judgment. That's terrifying. That's the holy God we encounter every Sunday. Every time we open His Word. Every time we pray. Worshiping God is not like playing with a furry little kitty. It's more like opening the door and stepping into the cage of a lion. That's the holiness and power of the God we're approaching. So, what keeps us from being struck down immediately? You know, what stays the lion's mouth? How can we who so often run our mouths and break our promises and come into worship carelessly and selfishly, how can we ever stand in that presence? And how can we stop coming so carelessly and foolishly? Foolishly, How can we turn from taking for granted the grace we have of coming into God's presence? Once again, we have to come back to the cross. We have to come back to the cross Listen up, hold your tongue, keep your word, and in all these things cling to the cross of Christ. As the holy God of the universe, God deserves our reverent, humble, thoughtful, careful attention and devotion. As the gracious God who sent His Son to the cross for our sin, our unworthiness, our broken promises and selfish thoughts. God invites us to come boldly and joyfully into His presence on the basis of Christ's blood. For sinners in the presence of God, everything depends on the grace of God in the cross. Apart from faith in Christ, we cannot presume to find God's favor because we stand condemned under His wrath. For the irreligious looking for a bailout, but unwilling to trust God and surrender their life in worship and faith to Him, their empty worship only invites judgment. With faith in Christ, we cannot presume that we have somehow earned God's favor through our religious works, because everything we do, no matter how good it is, has some stain and residue of sin on it. Only Christ's perfect, spotless, 
righteousness is sufficient to stand in God's place for us in order for us to be accepted and approved. We cannot presume upon our righteousness. And only through faith in Christ can the disconnection we experience be reconnected. As we look freshly at God's incomparable holiness, how majestic and amazing He is, as we look freshly at the ugliness of our sin in the light of that holiness, and as we marvel at the grace of God poured out for us on the cross, that because of what Christ did, a sinner like me can have an audience with a God like that. Think what God has rescued you from. From the dread of His wrath in hell. Think what God has rescued you for. To know and enjoy and delight in Him forever. Think who stands at the right hand of God right now, at this very moment, interceding for you, advocating on your behalf, saying, I have purchased this one. He belongs to me. I paid with my own blood. Think what spirit lives in your heart to give you the strength, the grace, the motivation to obey and to honor God with our lives. As Christians, we never outgrow our need for God's grace. And that's so true in every part of life, but especially worship. I quote this quote about every three months, so you might be memorizing it by now, but Jerry Bridges says, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And the best days are never so good that you're beyond the need for God's grace. We never outgrow our need for God's grace. And that grace not only qualifies us to enter God's presence, it motivates us, it strengthens us to honor God with our lives while we live out our days under the sun. Being confident that when our days are over and we meet God face to face because of Christ, we will be warmly welcomed into His presence forever. As Hebrews 10 beckons us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We come humbly before you. And we do marvel at your grace. May we never take it for granted, Lord. May we never turn worship into a game. And Lord, rather than turning worship into a game, may it be the delight of our hearts to come and to meet with you, not just here in this place, 
whenever we go to you in prayer, whenever we open your word, whenever we serve you in your name, whether it's at our jobs, in our families, wherever, God, may worship not be a game, may it be a joy, may it be the most important thing to us to make your name great in how we live our lives. And may we never lose sight of the cross to do that. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.